0: We're going to be reading from Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Pray then in this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. So we're continuing uh, teaching series on prayer, obviously, but we're also all aware that tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day when we will remember Dr. King and the the contributions that he has made to the ongoing change and movement of justice that is desperately needed and taking place in this country. And as we do so, I just want to acknowledge the the simple fact that we're not talking about two separate things here. When we talk about prayer and then we address Martin Luther King Day, these themes are very much intertwined. That. We're talking about night and day prayer in the month of February, and we know many accounts of Dr. King up throughout the night in prayer over the justice that he's asking God for. Many rhythms of his life have been documented, of him rising early and seeking God first thing in the morning, that we are reading a prayer that's inspired by the prophet Isaiah, and the last words Dr. King, the last time he gave a public address, he also quoted Isaiah and said, I've been to the mountaintop. And he used the exact same prophet as his final prayer for what he would see God do in this land. And we're praying through that same prophet's words that we have brothers and sisters of color among us who have a different spiritual heritage than the majority culture might have. And we need to deeply identify with that spiritual heritage because we talk from the book of Exodus about a God who hears the cries of the oppressed and enslaved people and then moves Moses to go and to seek them out and to lead them into deliverance. And so we know that we have a God who leans carefully close to the the words and the cries and the prayers that come from the margins. And so when we celebrate Martin Luther King Day, When we talk about prayer, we're talking about themes that are braided together so tightly that we can't take them apart. And so as you go into that celebration tomorrow, I just want to encourage you to allow your voice to join that of the ongoing desire for justice, mercy, reconciliation, equity, and hope in this country. Can we be that kind of people that can pray that sort of way? So let me pray for us now. Lord Jesus, I ask, I ask that we would lament where justice takes far too long. And I ask that we would remember that you are a God who is relentless and you're a God who suffers. And so where justice is taking far too long, let us remember that you bore injustice in your spirit and on your body. And let us also be assured of this, that you are the one true king who will bring full and final victory. And I pray, Lord, that this church could could not just be a part of the justice conversation in this city, but that we would lead Uh, that that we would step out ahead and be a preview community of what justice, mercy, and reconciliation looks like in this city. And I know that that involves looking deep into ourselves and and noticing all the ways that we are contributing to injustice and yet I pray that we'd be people that sign up and do the work. I pray that we would be people that can bear with one another as brothers and sisters. And I pray that we could be people that are more shaped by the family that you birthed in this world, Jesus, than the ones that we've come from. I pray, God, that our brothers and sisters of color would find home here, and they would make home here. And I pray, Lord, that, um, that in an ongoing way, that the church really would be the kingdom of God, a picture of another kingdom alive in the midst of this one. So we ask all that, knowing we got a long way to go, and we say, come and do the deep work within us, that we might see that without us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, um, the International Justice Mission has sent countless teams on dangerous assignments to free enslaved peoples around the world. And now, in a plush Washington, D.C. auditorium, they're hosting a conference on global abolition. It was called a conference, but to be honest, it was really just a prayer meeting. There were no keynote speakers, there was no call to action, there was no ask for financial donations. It was a two-day long prayer meeting. Let's ask God to do, by supernatural means, what seems impossible to do, or at least impossibly slow to do, by our own best efforts. That was the idea. And my friend Wayne sat in one of those plush seats and he prayed his guts out. And he worshipped the God who calls every soul fearfully and wonderfully made, and he pleaded with God to act, to get his hands dirty w- with the very needs of some of his own children. And he wasn't praying for a safe, from a safe distance, by the way. Wayne was an employee of IJM, deployed on some of those very abolition missions himself. He had gotten his own hands dirty with that which he was asking God to do. So his prayers were coming from a place of experienced compassion, and not just distant pity. He, he prayed that way. But here's the thing, and Wayne's telling me all this in his living room uh, a couple years after the fact. But here's the thing, the conference didn't work. Slavery's still a crisis in India. I could not tell any discernible difference as a result of all that prayer. And he went on, I've followed Jesus my whole life. I've spoken to the God that I believe is listening from as far back as I can remember. I've been moved to tears with this God. I've danced with him with joy. But now, as a young adult who is driven to the cause of Christ among the world's harshest suffering, I have this one question that I just cannot seem to shake. Why wouldn't God answer that prayer? And there it was, I I was listening as he went on and on, circling this one question that he finally zeroed in on. (laughs) You know, God's all powerful, he's completely loving, he knows each and every one of those slaves by name and has numbered the hairs on their heads, right? He loves justice, hates injustice, and promises to break the yoke of oppression and free the captive. Well, here's an auditorium full of people pleading with God to do something that he says he desperately wants to do. From my vantage point, that makes God silence. It means that he's either ignorant or apathetic or some intolerable combination of the two, or maybe most terrifying at all, he's not listening or not there altogether. Because if he was... Why wouldn't God answer that prayer? Now if you've ever asked that question or one like it, your own version's already coming painfully back to your mind. If you've never asked that question or one like it, you will. It's just a matter of time. Teach us to pray. That's the title of the teaching series that we've begun with in the new year. So far, we've covered an invitation to put prayer not just in theory, but into practice. And we've talked about the posture of stillness from which prayer naturally emerges. Now we are ready to learn the movements of prayer the way Jesus taught his disciples. Teach us to pray. That's what they asked him. And in response, Jesus just starts praying. Today, that prayer is the most universally known prayer among any religion, Uh, It typically goes by the title, The Lord's Prayer. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he was not just teaching them to pray more or to pray harder, he was teaching them to pray differently. And he was showing them how, offering them a model to follow. And so for the next few weeks, our teaching text is going to get quite familiar, because we're gonna make our way through this ancient exemplary prayer. We're gonna learn the movements. We're gonna take each word as it comes and learn prayer the Jesus way. And here's the first bit. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Or in layman's terms, start by remembering who you're talking to. Remember who God is, remember who you are, and remember who we are to each other. All that's packed into just the introductory phrase. So remember who you're talking to. First, remember who God is. Our Father in Heaven. Calling God Father is generally pretty dismissible today. It rolls off the tongues of experienced Christians as easily as the lyrics of Happy Birthday do to me while I'm lighting the candles on one of my kids' birthday cake. It's become just cheesy enough for most of us to skip by it and search for some meteor insight Jesus might offer later on in this prayer. Not to mention that for some, naming God Father is drenched with the baggage of historical patriarchy or just a less than dreamy experience of your own earthly father. The disciples, though, for them, this was anything but dismissible. Our Father in heaven, where we yawned, they gasped. In the first century Israel, the temple was the training ground for prayer, and the temple had taught them to pray with the utmost reverence. But ancient Israel often had reverence without intimacy. And many times they were guilty of praising a God who was mighty in power, but equally difficult to get to know. And that's because deep in our nature, wires got crossed all the way back at the beginning. So all the way back at the beginning of the story, in Genesis chapter 3, just before Adam and Eve plucked that forbidden fruit from that one forbidden tree, Eve was tempted by a serpent. And maybe you've grown a, a bit too sophisticated for talking snakes and magic fruit, and that's fine if that's the case, but whatever you make of the Genesis story, the Genesis experience is one that we can all identify with, because it is deeply personal and thoroughly psychological. The the Bible does not start with a messed up world that's in need of fixing. For two chapters, we've got a perfect world of pure relational bliss. And then in chapter three, after people were whole, the world was a place without pain, sickness, death, loneliness, or insecurity, or even death. In Genesis three, it opens this way. "'Now the serpent was more crafty "'than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. "'He said to the woman, did God really say "'you must not eat from any tree in the garden?' Now, the really interesting thing about this whole original sin bit is that at no point does the serpent's temptation become direct. Never does he say, here, try the fruit, or anything like that. Instead, the serpent takes aim at Eve's trust in the character of God. Did God really say... Just flip back one page, and you'll see exactly what God really said. This is Genesis 2. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The serpent, one chapter later, repeats that exact command, but with some key adjustments in tone and emphasis. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? See, this is the most effective kind of lie, because there are seeds of truth in it. It's not an outright fallacy, fallacy. it's just a bending and a twisting of the facts. It's a deception. And in Genesis 2, God displayed generosity, offering free reign over the whole garden, any tree you want to eat from, except this one. It's poisonous. And then in Genesis 3, the enemy flips the command that was generous to make it narrow and restrictive. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? You see, he's flipping a generous offer to make it sound stingy. He's not asking Eve to taste the fruit. He's chipping away at her trust in God. The psychologist Kurt Thompson in his book, The Soul of Shame, talks about two different kinds of doubt. He says there's fact-based doubt, and then there's relational doubt. And it feels different to doubt that I'm going to be able to remember the digits of my friend's phone number than it does to doubt that my son will be safe at his stepdad's house this weekend. Now, they're both doubts, but they're doubts that attach themselves to our emotion and our identity and our inner selves in different ways, and that's because the first is a fact-based kind of doubt. It is doubt that I can remember a particular set of facts. The second is doubt caused by a relational rupture. Trust has been broken somewhere in the past, and now I live in fear of the ongoing implications of that broken trust, So, the enemy plants a seed of doubt in Eve's imagination, but it's not the fact based kind of doubt. It's not the doubt that she can remember the exact words of God's statement to her. Instead, it's a doubt in her trust in God, a relational rupture kind of doubt, the kind that digs its talons into our souls and then activates all of our fear based emotions. There's something else going on here, too, in the temptation, and it's technical, but it's really important. In Genesis 2, God repeatedly uh, calls himself or is named Yahweh Elohim, which means Lord God in English. But then in Genesis 3, every time the serpent refers to God, he's just called Elohim, which keeps the abstract title for divinity but drops the personal name. It's just like calling a person by their title but not their name, like calling someone doctor instead of Susan or professor instead of Daryl or sir instead of Steve. It's respectful but it's also distant and depersonalized. The more intimacy in a relationship, the less likely someone is to be known by their title. And an oncologist's spouse probably doesn't call her doctor, he just calls her by her first name. And as I've said before, my children do not call me pastor. They call me Tyler, just kidding, they call me dad. (laughs) See, the serpent, Just by the title he uses, subtly demotes God from a a father to a distant, stingy dictator. Mighty in power, sure, but hard to know. And are you sure you can trust him? Eve takes the bait. She remembers God not according to her own experience of God but according to the serpent's deception. Original sin is not a story about breaking the rules. It's a story about broken trust between creator and creation and the far reaching consequences of that broken trust. When Jesus prayed our father, he wasn't just giving God a clever new name. He was restoring the ancient deception. He was mending the relational rupture that had caused all the conflicts in his created world and with Within the human soul when Jesus showed up in the first century the grounding story of that temple that taught people to pray was the exodus when God appeared as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night now that means a lot of things but one of them is this that that the existential question of the ancient world was not does God exist of course God exists He's the pillar of fire stretching from the desert floor to the night sky, serving as our wilderness guide on this journey to the promised land. The question was, is God knowable? Because a pillar of fire doesn't provoke doubt in God's existence, but neither does it invite intimacy to know this God. The way that God revealed himself in the Exodus was mighty in power, but unless your name is Moses, there are some pretty tight limitations on how close you can come. Ancient Israel knew a God of cleansing rituals and animal sacrifices, a God of ten plagues and blood on the doorpost, a, a God who parts seas and floods the earth, a God with a heavy hand of deliverance and an equally heavy hand of judgment. Now Jesus did not introduce us to a new God. He was abundantly clear about that. I have not come to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them. And Jesus did absolutely nothing to minimize the power of that God, but Jesus did make that powerful God knowable. And that knowability sounded like our Father. Jesus prayed to the revered God of power and judgment with the familiarity of Father, and it was an attractive scandal. Uh, Scandalous for all the obvious reasons. How dare you? Who do you think you are? Do you know who you're talking to? But attractive for all the obvious reasons. God is knowable, even by me. And this guy, Jesus, seems to know exactly who he's talking to. Now, our modern Western world is a million miles from that first century when our hearts, though, aren't so different from theirs the number one obstacle the modern person continues to face today when it comes to prayer is the inability to believe in the love of God. It is the distrust that a God this mighty, this powerful would actually become this intimate. Intimate even for a for back and call conversation with someone like me. God is love, says 1 John. It's the sum total of who he is, concentrated down to just a single syllable. We buy that intellectually. We sing about it and celebrate it, but at a deeper level, somewhere in our emotions, in our gut, in our bones, we struggle to trust it. And in a name, Jesus untangles the ancient deception that robs the human soul of the intimacy we were never created to live without. Remember who you're talking to. That means we remember who God is. But secondly, it means you remember who you are. Because Eve did not only forget God's identity, she forgot her own as well. When she imagined God as something less than father, equally, she imagined herself as something less than daughter. And as we lift our eyes to God, recovering his true identity, he returns the favor. He renames us according to our true identity. The letters of the New Testament, they very rarely call you and I Christians. That's a word that you'll find three times in the entire Bible. It became popular a whole lot later. Now, the title that was used for Jesus followers like us in the early church was Beloved. Now, where did that title come from? Well, just a few generations after God revealed himself in the Exodus, God revealed himself in a poem called Song of Songs, and it is the most scandalous book in the biblical canon, and there is not a close second. It is the Fifty Shades of Grey of the Old Testament, and that's probably got some theological problems, but I'm just trying to be honest about the situation in case you are to read it. A few generations after Exodus comes the Song of Songs, and Song of Songs is a Hebrew love poem that would have made Shakespeare blush, and while there are differing views, the common and the ancient view is that this is a poem about Jesus' pursuit of his bride, of the church, of us. It's a poem about God's pursuing heart over us. And the ancient Hebrews would remember the God of Exodus deliverance in a meal called the Passover, a long holiday feast that was the high point of all the celebrations of the year. And at the Passover feast, when they were stuffed, when everyone had had the last course and was leaning back from the table, an elder would stand up and he would open to Song of Songs and he would read all nine chapters of the poem over the people after they had eaten. The implication was this. The God of delivering power is also the God of personal pursuing love. Song of Songs does not call you and I Christians. Beloved. That's what it names us. 27 times in a single poem. In the Gospels, in those few critical moments when we get to eavesdrop on the Trinity, when we hear God speak, God the Father speak audibly over Jesus the Son, Beloved. Is what he calls him. In the New Testament letters to the churches, beloved appears 56 times. So, for those keeping score at home, that's Christians three times, beloved 56. When you pray, you are leaning back from the table, stuffed on the feast of all that God has won for you through the victory of Jesus. And in that posture, he also speaks over you beloved, beloved, beloved. The God of victorious power is also the God of intimate love. And the place that we rediscover that is prayer. Brendan Manning writes that he would begin every day repeatedly praying, I am my beloved and his desire is for me. That's a line taken from Song of Songs. So before he uttered a single word in prayer again and again and again, he would remember what all of us tend to forget and that's who we are. I am my beloved, and his desire is for me. I am my beloved, and his desire is for me. You see, our Father is this place in prayer where we discover that God's love is the defining reality over the whole of creation, and that includes you and me. Immediately after giving us the Lord's Prayer, Jesus then went on to paint a picture of the listening God who's on the receiving end of all of our prayers. And this is the illustration he chose. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So according to Jesus, God wants to bless you. Did that sink in? God wants to bless you. When you approach him in prayer, yes, or even yes and, is the unchecked predisposition of his heart, every time you utter, dear God. Now I fear that he's grown out of it at this point, but my oldest, Hank, who's now five, a year ago around this time, he would just say to me all the time at random moments throughout the day, you'll always love me no matter what though, Dad. <laughs> and sometimes it was in context, and it would be fitting, like I would dish out consequences for you know, some unacceptable behavior and he would go, You'll always love me no matter what, though, Dad. And then other times, it would just be totally at random. I'd set a plate in front of him for dinner, I would tuck him in at night, I'd drop him off at school, and he would just say, You'll always love me no matter what, though, Dad. He would not let me get through a day, sometimes even an hour, without reminding me of that at least once. Or was he asking me? I think it was both. Yeah, buddy, no matter what. I'll always love you. And in that little exchange, we'd remember again and again and again and again who we are and who we always will be to one another. Now, we grow up in a thousand different ways. We become more sophisticated, more responsible, more introspective. Uh, The raw physicality of our adolescence grows into self-control as we enter adulthood. The unbridled hormonal emotion of our youth stabilizes as we move towards adulthood. We grow up, and that's a good thing. Our hearts, though, they're Peter Pan. (laughs) They're forever young. (laughs) We never outgrow the need to be reminded by the day, sometimes by the hour, or even the minute. You'll always love me no matter what though, Dad. Because the second that we forget that, the second we forget that he is Father and I am beloved, the second that profound revolution is diluted into nothing more than a religious trope, or it's held in our intellect while a different story lives in our bones, then our lives unravel and so does our faith. And this is why the French mystic Francois Fenelon famously said, true prayer is only another name for the love of God. You see, Jesus teaches us to start our prayers our Father in heaven. And when we call God Father, we equally remember that we are completely, uniquely His beloved. And until we know that love, nothing can be right within us. But that simple revelation, when it gets deep into us, something then irrevocably becomes right within us at the deepest level. When we pray our Father, we're really asking Him to remind us again and again that we are His beloved. So you start by remembering who you're talking to, remember who God is, remember who you are, and then remember who you are to each other. It's important that Jesus doesn't teach us to pray my father. He teaches us to pray our father. Again, he's restoring all that was lost in the fall because following that taste of forbidden fruit, Adam and Eve, who were previously naked and unashamed, cover up with fig leaves. When they grow distant from God, they also immediately experience distance from one another. The tear is not just ripped between us and God, it's ripped between me and you, between sister and brother. Our father is not only a claim about who I am to God, it's equally a claim about who we are to one another, siblings in one family. And sadly, I notice that I tend to go through my days as if this whole thing is a film in which I play the lead and everyone else is just an extra. Right, the people that I pass on the sidewalk, my coworkers at my office, which happens to be this, uh, the appointments that fill my day, even my wife and children, all of them tend to be extras. I so easily forget the sacredness of others. When our trust in God is fractured, our intimacy with one another is in turn fractured. And pl- prayer is the place where I recover God's identity and my own, but it's equally the place where I recover the identity of everyone else. There's Brendan Manning who, who praised that line, that beloved line from Song of Psalms to begin his day, goes on to write this, if I'm not in touch with my own belovedness, then I cannot touch the sacredness of others. See, we forget who God is, we forget who we are, and we forget who we are to each other. Teach us to pray, they asked him. And Jesus responds something like, start by remembering who you're talking to. Biblically, we are commanded to remember more often than we're commanded to do or to not do or to obey, even to pray, remember. Abraham Joshua Heschel says, much of what the Bible demands can be comprised in one word. Remember, remember because in the long journey of the spiritual life we tend to forget. We tend to lose the plot of even our own redemption stories. Prayer is the place where our memory is restored. So Protestants and Evangelicals, we've named this exemplary prayer of Jesus as the Lord's Prayer and that's a fitting title. But our Catholic brothers and sisters, they just call it the Our Father. And I do wonder if they're onto something. Because it all begins and ends just in that opening line. Our Father. Jesus said so much in a name. The beautiful truth of restoring the ancient deception. But that's not all he said. Once we've remembered who we're talking to, he then says, and now pray out adoration. Or in his own words, hallowed be your name. Now, this word hallowed, it means to make holy. The closest commonly used word we have in the English language today is probably honor. Our Father is a reminder of God's intimacy to us. Hallowed be your name is a reminder of his holiness, his otherness. And hallowed is a verb, so this is an active kind of praying, meaning honoring, adoring, naming out loud the greatness of God. Jesus teaches that when we pray, whenever our lips part, after we say, dear God, the first words that should come from our mouths should be those that honor the God on the receiving end of our prayers. Hallowed be your name. Why? Why start there? I mean, why does God, who is a completely, like, all-powerful, completely loving, wholly self-sufficient God, need me, a meager creation of his own imagination, to remind him how great he is? Is this guy honestly that insecure? Is he that big of a megalomaniac that he needs to read and reread and reread his press clippings every time we talk? Is he so easily manipulated by just a little buttering up for me that if I start with hallowing, I got a better chance on the ask that I'm waiting to bring on the other side? No, it's none of that. It's not even close. In fact, this hallowing business is not for God's benefit at all. It's for my own benefit and for yours. I need to start by hallowing for my prayer to have any sense of coherence because our prayers originate in the setting of this world. Now subconsciously, we often imagine that the world to be is a neutral place, but it's not. It is a contested space, meaning that when you begin to pray, the the odds are overwhelming that another name other than Jesus is already being hallowed in your heart. A name that goes by the name of uh, accomplishment or success or my own personal comfort, or the seamless integration of my agenda into the day's events. It is the name of self-will and all of its destructive varieties. And when we pray, we are stepping out of the fundamental reality of this world and into the fundamental truer reality of God. And every time we do, we hallow his name so that the place that our prayers emerge from is more defined by who he is than the clutter that is all around me today. Now, when we hallow his name, really what we're saying is, God, will you come and reorder the loves and affections in my inner world right now? That's why we start with praise. And the pendulum of popular thought, it has swung pretty far from Jesus' time to our own. We might be comforted by the intimacy of calling God Father where they were scandalized, but we equally tend to be scandalized by the reverence of saying, hallowed be your name, where they felt quite natural. And it is for that reason that I believe that we need the second line of the Lord's Prayer every bit as much as they needed the first one. The Apostle John had this really wild vision of heaven called Revelation. You'll find it right at the end of the Bible. It's the last book. And I'll be honest with you, it is out there. (laughs) Revelation 4 tells us that right now, around God's throne, there are four living creatures. Each has six wings and is covered with eyes all over its body, even under its wings. Revelation 4, 8, day and night, they, those living creatures, never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Who was and is and is to come. Covered with eyes all over its body? It's, that's a touch strange, gross even. And how do the armpits work? You know? Can you think like the It's like you're getting poked in the eye every time you flap. But God's the designer of every creature. He gave fish gills so that they could breathe underwater. He gave birds wings so they could fly. So what is the designer intending for the purpose of all of these eyes? Well, it's to see. Their purpose is to hallow his name. So he gave them as many eyes as possible so that they could fully see him. So they could behold the wonder and the grandeur and the majesty of who he is. And seeing God as he really is leads to what? To holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and isn't as to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, it leads to unceasing praise, unending hallowing. They never get over it. They never grow bored. We're talking about a creatures that will exist into eternity, and every time they gaze upon him, they will be undone again by awestruck wonder. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And you know something that really blows my mind is that I'm going to spend an eternity with God, and I'm never going to reach the end of him. I'm never going to get over the awestruck wonder of his greatness, of how good he is, of how mighty he is, and yet how loving he is, of how distant and other he is, and yet how knowable he is. I will never tire of saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, the more common name for this hallowing kind of prayer that I'm describing, it's praise. Praise. And praise, just to give a definition that I made up, just to get us all on the same page, is to say or to sing who God is. So adoration types of prayers, they're often sung, not spoken. And praise is simply a prayer that is set to melody, just like many of the Psalms are that we find in our Bible. It is a way to hallow the name of God uh, in song. And praise is powerful because it's about our attention. And whatever we give our, our attention to then shapes who we are. I once had a conversation with someone who was talking to me about a disconnect that he felt with musical worship. And then after telling me all about the disconnect, he said, you probably don't relate to this at all, though, because I always see you, like, raising your hands and closing your eyes and sometimes kneeling and stuff like that. So you must be really into worship. And I just laughed. And I was like, man, you've got it exactly backwards, You see, occasionally in musical worship, I am lost in wonder, love, and praise. And that is a huge amount of fun when that happens. But more often, when I close my eyes or raise my hands or fall to my knees, it's not about emotion. It's about formation. It's about me using my body to try to take my heart somewhere it isn't. It is my way of praying, God, I want to see you here. But I am distracted by what I might or might not have for lunch later. And I've got this moment from yesterday still replaying in my head. And I know I need to preach after this first set of songs and the intro to the sermon is kinda bouncing around my head and exactly how I should say it and everything. And God, I want to see you here. I know there's a greater reality that I'm proclaiming with my lips, but the truth is that my heart is not entering into that reality. So is there a way I can posture my body that will drag my heart and direct my attention so that I might see you and be undone by the wonder that is in heaven. Praise is sometimes the overflow of our hearts. But more often, it's about the intentional turning of our hearts. This is why Johannes Hartle writes, praise is the conscious act of turning one's inward gaze to God and making his beauty and greatness more important to you than all the darkness and sorrows that you face. And everything that comes from the Lord's Prayer after this first movement, every confession and hope and request, it's all just overflowing from the name of God being hallowed in the heart of the praying person. So why wouldn't God answer that prayer? We're back where we started I'm in Wayne's apartment. He's staring at the hardwood floor of his living room. He was talking to me at first, but now he's more talking to God and I just happen to be eavesdropping sitting there in the room with him. The weight of his question is just hanging in the air after he says it. It's a short and straightforward question that to be quite honest with you does not have a short and straightforward answer. And it's a question we're going to continue to pick apart in the weeks to come. But what we know for sure right now is that powerful prayer, it always begins with adoration. Adoration, when it flows from our lips, uh, easily, of course. But praying or singing praise is not always the overflow of our hearts. It rarely is. Adoration is a kind of praying that involves intentional choice. And adoration is at its most powerful when it's gritty, gritty willful, even defiant, In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas were on their way to a prayer meeting and they healed a trafficked girl who was desperately in need of help and the men using her body for profit did not appreciate that very much and so they got them, they drummed up this bogus charge and got them thrown in prison and so instead of leading the prayer meeting in the temple Paul and Silas more and more likely stripped naked in public, beaten with rods and then thrown into the ancient definition of solitary confinement, which probably looked something like having their ankles chained to the ground, uh, sitting on bare cold stone, their backs pressed against the wall where their wrists were chained there that's the scene here's the next verse about midnight paul and silas were praying and singing hymns to god and the other prisoners were listening to them praying and singing hymns are these guys delusional no they understand the power of defiant adoration now hold on to that moment Paul went on later in his life to write several letters of encouragement and instruction to the early churches scattered in major cities throughout the Greco-Roman world. Those letters make up a good chunk of what we now call the New Testament, and they contain, among other things, beautiful poetic prayers written from the pen of Paul himself. My favorite, and arguably Paul's most famous prayer is in Ephesians 3, and it goes like this. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. It's a mirror image of Jesus' words, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, that just come through Paul's language and personality. He, He is praying adoration. Here's something you'll notice about Paul's prayers. They never begin with human need. Scan all the prayers in the New Testament epistles, and they always start with the magnitude of God, not the mess of these circumstances. Search those letters. You will not find a single prayer that starts with, God, the system's corrupt. God, I need you to show up here, God, help! No, it always, it's never leading with a request, it always starts with hallowing. And hallowing, after reordering the affections and the loves of his heart, leads to the request. He remembers who he's talking to first. And that on its own is worth remembering. Adoration matters, so start there, family. But adoration matters most when it's an act of defiance. Hallowing the name of God is most important in the circumstances when God's absence is more obvious to you than his presence, when the noise of the brokenness of this world is drowning out the noise of the Father's love, and when God seems to have taken an unfortunate day off from the cosmic battle against redemption. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from before whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. That's where Paul starts. Paul starts. Here's the famous ending of the famous prayer. Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. So adoration culminates in remembering who God is, the God of incomprehensible power and unbelievably intimate love. And the prayed words that are wedged in between those two statements are filled with wide-eyed hope and floor-rattling faith. But here's the part that I cannot get over is that this prayer and the whole letter of Ephesians was written from prison. The place Paul is kneeling before the Father to write poetic prayers, is not next to a mahogany desk with a feather-tipped pen in his hand on a riding break from his speaking tour. He has been unjustly tried under a conspiratorial system. He's lived under the supervision of corrupt authorities. He's been locked up from bearing witness to the very God that he's now praying to. How do you pray words like this from a place like that? I mean, shouldn't he be trying to get an attorney or or pleading his case or getting the attention of one of the guards? Is there anyone who can give him a fair hearing? And instead, he doesn't do any of that. He hits the ground next to the cot in his cell and he begins to pray, Father, and then hallows his name. It's a defiant act of adoration. A friend of mine was kind enough to design this image for me a couple of years ago. And in the early days of the pandemic, when New York City, my home at the time, became the epicenter of the whole world of this thing, and I went and had to close down the prayer room that we had started on Broadway in Brooklyn, and I took the desk that we had set up there for other people to pray to, and I I wedged it in the tiny space in my New York-sized apartment that existed between the foot of my bed and the wall. And I would work every day, isolated from the people that I was actually trying to love and serve, and I had no idea how to do what I was now meant to do. And so I got him to design that image for me. Because I just thought, you know what, if Paul can pray with wide-eyed hope and floor-rattling faith from a place like that, I can do it from a place like this. If Paul can hallow the Father's name in circumstances he never would have chosen, then I can certainly hallow the Father's name from what I've been handed, which is nothing compared to a prison cell. David Benner says, it is relatively easy to meet God in moments of joy or bliss. In these situations, we correctly count ourselves blessed by God. The challenge is to believe that this is also true and to know God's presence in the midst of doubt, depression, anxiety, conflict, or failure. But the God who is Emmanuel is equally in those moments we would never choose as those that we would gladly choose. Hallowed be your name. It's always most powerful when it's a willing choice when we are swimming against the current, when it's an act of holy defiance. So where on earth did Paul get the chutzpah to pray like this from a place like that? Well, now back to that moment I told you to hang on to. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. They're not delusional. They understand the power of defiant adoration. They know exactly what they're doing. Psalm 34 says, oh, magnify the Lord with me, let us exalt his name together. Magnify the Lord, that's a statement about sight. It's a way of saying, God, I can't see you here and now in the midst of this, but I want to. So magnify the Lord, enlarge our view of him, let's search him out. How do we do that? Let us exalt his name together. We hallow his name, we praise him. You see, hallowed be your name is a prayer, it is a longing to see God here and now, to know his tangible presence in the midst of this particular mess they started singing in that prison cell, not because they were suddenly caught up in a moment of euphoria, they started singing as a way of praying, God, where are you? Because I came here to to draw children into the family that's gonna outlast all the other families, but now I'm locked behind bars, and you say that you're calm in the raging storm, and you say that you free the captive, I'm the captive, show yourself here now. That's the subtext underneath the a cappella hymn session that's coming from the innermost cell. Philip Yancey says, for me, Jesus has become the focal point of faith, and increasingly I'm learning to keep the magnifying glass of my faith focused on him. In my spiritual journey, I have long lingered on the margins, puzzling over matters like the problem of pain, the conundrum of prayer, providence versus free will. When I do so, everything becomes fuzzy. Looking at Jesus, however, restores clarity. That's the subtext underneath the amazing grace you're hearing from the guy who's out of tune and way off key from the innermost cell. God, everything's fuzzy in here right now. And so I'm looking to you, I'm hallowing your name, Jesus, because I wanna see, and I wanna see clearly. You see, praise or hallowing prayer, it is not for the emotional, the optimistic, or the uber spiritual, it's for the courageous. It's for those courageous enough to look hard into the darkness of this world and the cheap medication that it offers and then turn their gaze back to God to trust Him and Him alone to be their shelter. It is defiant adoration, and that is the most potent kind. Here's the very next verse after the hymn session. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. See, one thing led to another, and by the time the sun rose the next morning, they had gone from imprisoned in the middle of a jail cell to baptizing the prison warden and his entire family in his own bathtub. Paul and Silas opened their mouths to hallow God in the midst of an absolute mess. I can't make sense of this chapter in my story, so I want to see you here, Father. And God showed up at midnight in a prison cell. When they sang out in a jail cell, they were dragging heaven into a dark corner of the earth and so for today I want to land here my friend and mentor Pete Gregg uh, who is the founder of something called the 24-7 prayer movement he's going to be here with us to close out this very teaching series he sent me this photo a couple years ago and it's a picture taken from the 10-year anniversary of uh, the movement itself and um, he sent it to me because these people are family to me their spiritual family, they're a ragtag band of radical misfits that never belong in, in an ornate cathedral like this one, but somehow they would weaseled their way in and gotten this beautiful building for uh, this massive celebration. They got to hold the 10 year anniversary worship gathering at St. Paul's Cathedral in London. That's one of the most reverent historic chapels on the face of the earth today, it's a tourist attraction. It's an old church that that was a a brilliant house of prayer for a long time, but today it's mainly a place for tourists with selfie sticks. And some of the Anglican bishops that still oversee St. Paul's, they attended that 10-year anniversary gathering, and they showed up in all the pomp and circumstance of their formal robes. And they were mostly there just to make sure that nothing too rowdy went on in the sacred building on their watch. And then there was such a sense of God's presence among them as they began to hallow his name, that the priests who oversee the building, they broke into dancing like kids at a party. What do you call that? Jesus called it, hallowed be your name. And there's these words from G.K. Chesterton, I think they're for us. I think we need to hear them. He says, it is the paradox of history that each generation is converted by the saints who contradict it most. Revival. That's the word we often use to talk about spiritual awakening across a community, about a sweeping move of God that drenches everyone in its path, like a big wave that's washing up to shore. And lots of people long for the highlight reel of revival. Lots of people want to show up for the signs and wonders. But revival isn't something we catch if we're lucky. It's not like a storm system that's moving over the world and we're trying to go and find it and get underneath it. Revival is something quiet. It's something ordinary. It's something we're formed into. Revival is what happens when a person or a group of people allow God such access to them that he can form them into a holy contradiction. And so some historic revivals, they've looked intense, like we've gotta get up early, we've gotta do something, we gotta grit our teeth, we gotta really want this thing. But this is the 21st century US. Uh, this is one of the most driven, self-starter, intense societies that the world has ever seen to this point, point. and this is the city of Portland. It's one of the more intellectually stimulated, cynically inclined cities in the Western Hemisphere. If you survive in Portland for any length of time, it's because you know intensity. Intensity is what got you to a place like this. It's what keeps you in a place like this. So when the Spirit fills people in a city like ours and forms us into a holy contradiction, it looks like joy, not intensity. Because in Portland, joy is a holy contradiction and it is the paradox of history that each generation is converted by the saints who contradict it most. So family, when the Spirit of God is breathing on Bridgetown Church, it looks like priests in formal robes dancing like children. Unless you become like little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. The stirrings of a prayer movement in Portland. He put the photo back up. The story, stirrings of a prayer movement in Portland, they look like that. They look like new believers and experienced old saints, like people praying out of the overflow of delight and people praying into the darkness of defiance, like people who are just at the beginning of this thing and can't get enough, and people who thought they had seen it all, suddenly discovering that there's more and more and the layers of this onion never stop getting peeled. Every generation will be converted by the saints who contradicted most. Can you imagine a greater contradiction that we might be formed into a city like this one than joy? than a people who know what it is to hallow his name so how do we step in we learn to pray on our knees in the front of our prison cots we learn to sing out at midnight in a jail cell we magnify his name let us exalt his name together we hallow his name and then the kingdom come just follows after